Be advised, the following episode contains content that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Had you really thought it all through? I believe I did, yes. Quite intently, quite thoroughly, yes. How could you not? How could you sign up for a one-way permanent human mission to Mars, leaving behind your wife, your children, your siblings, your nieces and nephews, your friends, your dogs? How can you sign up for all of that and not give it profound consideration? This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Peter Dagan Portnoy was prepared to one day die on Mars. Several years ago, he was making his way through a selection process, which would decide who would have the opportunity to become part of a permanent human settlement on the Red Planet. Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids, Elton John would have warned. In fact, it's cold as hell. Peter is a father to five children. He lives in Massachusetts. He's a software engineer and an entrepreneur. He's also skilled as a choreographer, a ballet dancer, a triathlete, and a sailor. Peter made the news when he was named as one of 100 semifinalists for the Mars One mission. This interview will give you a more complete picture of him as a man. Please be aware that we discuss disturbing instances of sexual abuse. Peter, let's start at the year 2008. You had a crisis of self around that time. On a macro scale, we were dealing with a financial crisis. What was happening in your life? It was directly related to the recession. It was triggered by that event. I had been working at a small startup, and I... I thought it was a good place to ride out the recession. I remember telling my best friend that even though it was not an ideal organization, it would be good enough to ride it out. I was generating value for the organization and and I felt good about that. And then the CEO brought us together and we had a company meeting. He gave us thumbs up. We were a successful startup. We had closed our series a and companies were fighting over us for series B And then I don't think it was three weeks later that he called me into his office on a Friday morning and it was a layoff and he, he fired over half the company. And I, I've been a hiring manager for decades. I know how much work it goes that goes into planning the layoff. So at the point where he was standing up and telling us that everything was rosy, he had already had his list of people he was going to fire. It was already in progress. That that level of duplicity was just, it was profound. And I had started a, my own business a few years before that. And um, You're a software engineer. Yeah, it was a completely different business. I built a, a card box for the hobby game industry. It was, if you play Settlers of Catan... I've heard of that, even though I don't play. It's so much fun. I built a card box so that you could keep the cards neatly organized right next to the game. And it made the game play a lot faster. I played it with my friends every week. And and so I decided to to commercialize it. So I I produced it and manufactured it. And I I was told by experts it would take a year and a half to do that. But within six months, I had it ready to ship and ready to, to deliver to stores. So I was really happy about that. And I had leveraged myself a bit for that. And so by the time we got to this, this layoff, I had recovered from that startup. I had, the business was running on the side. It was generating income. I had paid off my debt, but I had, I had wiped everything out to recover. I had to pay back taxes. I, but I was getting myself back on my feet. This layoff came and I had no safety net. And you have five kids. And there were five children. And I, and I, I yelled at the CEO, don't effing tell me this is a layoff. You're putting my wife and my five children on the street. I can't believe you just told us. I was just furious. He had just told us two weeks before we're good. Liar. Liar. (laughs) Yes. It was infuriating. 
And I knew it was not a good time to go look for work. Right. It was the worst time to look for work. Oh, man. And that's exactly what happened. I've been in the software industry. By that point, I'd been in software for over a decade. I've been, I was a manager, I kid you not, since I was 16 years old. I've been managing people and businesses and organizations. In the theater world, I ran teams and put up productions. I ran, mounted off-Broadway off productions in New York City on my own steam. I, I just, I knew what I could do. And I was comfortable in job interviews. I was comfortable talking to people. And uh, interview after interview, process after process ended with, well, you're our top candidate, but we're not going to hire anybody at the moment. And, um, and I knew I had either enough money to put food on the table for five children, or I could pay the mortgage, but I couldn't do both. And uh, I'm sure everybody who went through it will remember what it was like dealing with mortgage companies. That sounds so desperate. Foreclosing, foreclosing, foreclosing. And I, uh, I, as I said, I had no safety net. And um, I, I found an hourly job at Quincy, and, and it was through uh, a family connection. But the manager there was really the least capable manager for whom I've ever worked. And I would drive, I had to be there at nine o'clock. I had to leave at five. I couldn't make up hours. I couldn't bring the laptop home. I couldn't, 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 couldn't all these restrictions. And she just made my life so miserable that I cried 90 minutes driving there, 90 minutes driving back, but I would come home and dry up my tears and suck them up and go into my house with a big smile for my children. And when, when, when that ended and then the foreclosure notice came, it was just too much. It was just too much. And, um, I started to really wonder who am I? If I'm not my job, if my marriage was on the rocks, I just, I, couldn't really be present for my, my children. And I was very fortunate to meet uh, an excellent doctor and to start therapy. And that's when I really dug into my my past and started to understand the ramifications of having been sexually abused as a little boy. Was that the first time I had done some work before my ex-wife and I were married and I, in New York city. And I thought I had understood this. I don't have clear memories. I'm very fortunate. I, I used to work with a man who remembered his abuse. He was sexually abused by his father and his mother didn't know what to do. So she sent him to the church and then he was sexually abused by his priest. And he remembers, he remembered, he's passed away. He remembered. And so I, I recognize I'm fortunate. I don't remember much. What are you willing to share or what do you remember happened to you as a child? I had an uncle who was 12 years older than me. So he was a teenage boy and I was a toddler at three or four. And he used me. He just, he used me and raped me. And um, I would not be surprised if that had happened to him when he was a little boy. One of the hardest parts about what I experienced 
was the rejection when all of that changed. This was someone who was paying attention to me, who was interested in me, not appropriately, not in a healthy way. But when that stopped, I didn't know why. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know why he was doing it. I just knew that my uncle who always loved me and looked out for me and wanted to be with me and do things with me didn't want me anymore. It was so confusing. I remember being seven and being in, in, in my grandparents' house with him and his younger sister. And he would say, go, go hang out with your aunt. And I would go over to my aunt's room and I would wonder, well, why aren't you closing the door? Why aren't we doing, I don't understand. Why am I here? I don't get it. It was, it was, it wasn't until that work before I married that I started to put that together. But at that time there was a lot of, there was, there were a lot of news articles about people who were coming up with artificial memories. And so I didn't really trust it. I wasn't sure. I didn't know. You weren't even at the age of reason. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have clear memories. I wasn't going to go and find my uncle and ask him. The family was estranged. There was a lot of bad, bad blood. So I moved on. I got married and had five kids. And then things were pretty good until 2008. You know, yeah, we had our ups and downs. We were a married couple and we had, you know, one and then two and three and four and five and um, coaching uh, soccer and kids and they were all theater rats and my ex was a dancer and it was a house that was filled with love and chaos. We, we, we gave our house a name and as a German speaker, it may be recognizable to you. I invented the name and we called our house Hof Quatschmacher. <laughs> The, the farm of nonsense makers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it was just that, you know, guests would come over for dinner and there was guaranteed to be a performance after dinner every single time. Oh, how fun. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. When the children were little and they were little toddlers, I would give them magic pillow rides upstairs to bed and I'd pick them up on the pillow and <laughs> fly them around the kitchen and upstairs until they got too big to lift up that way. A really engaged father. Yes. And, and my ex was, was a really good mom. She strove to be a really good mom. There was love and care and kindness. But, you know, there was an unhealthy dynamic between the two of us. I was not mature as a person. I was struggling with this lack of self-identity from the abuse that I received as a child. She has her own history. She didn't share all of it with me. And um, so we had a dynamic that we thought worked for us, but it wasn't based on being healthy, aware, capable people. And so the edges started to fray. And we, we talked about separating and divorce probably a half a dozen times over the course of our marriage prior to that. But I think that a lot of couples do that. They, they say, do. Right. We're just, this is, I am so done with this. any long-term marriage. Right. But then whenever one person, and this is something I remarked to my friends, whenever one of us would step towards that cliff, the other would pull, pull us together again. We not, we didn't want to go there. And all the way up to the very end, when we finally got to that point, we're like, we're divorcing. This is it. It's over. And the next day we were backing away from that cliff again. But there was, there was, there was a force that, that pushed us there. So we ended up and, and it was the right thing to do. What else were you able to work through in therapy? So I started therapy around that time in nine so that's when I recognized that what I, the work I did prior to marriage was correct and valid. 
that I indeed had been sexually abused, that it went on for years. I was now correlating the story with my, with my parents. I was now pulling in all little bits of information and creating a cohesive narrative and looking at it from multiple directions. And I, my therapist and I became more and more convinced that this was an actual memory. This is, this is what happened. And, and now we could start looking at the ramifications from that. Um, how did I feel about my mother, about my father? What environment was I raised in? How did I comport myself to other people? And I started to grow and change. What did you learn? Or how did you grow and change? I... I started to see myself as a person and I was able to see other people as their own people. No longer was a dynamic with someone simply about, could I get them to approve of me? Could I get them to recognize me in some way? I don't need that external validation. I know who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am. That's very liberating. It is. It really, really is. And I'd like to help other people find that path. You use the story of Nathaniel Bowditch as an example of teaching men how to access something that was once difficult to access. He was the early American mathematician credited as the founder of modern maritime navigation. Could you share more about his life and how it relates to the work you do? Navigation at that time was done by a table of charts that was produced by the British Naval Authority, and it was rife with errors. And he saw the errors, and he recalculated all of these tidal charts for the entire planet, all of them, fixed them. And then as a follow-on to that, he taught himself how to, how to read and use a sextant, which was this rarefied difficult task. And he realized it could be simplified so that any able-bodied seaman could use a sextant and determine their location, determine their longitude. He brought a complicated, abstract, elite process to a wide audience and made it accessible. In that model, I think that there should be ways that we can teach men to acknowledge and recognize their emotions recognize that they are people and that everybody else around them is a person too. And we can help men treat one another all across our society more equitably. That's why I volunteer in this men's group to share my experience, to listen, to pay forward the incredible support that I got from my therapist, from my family, as, as I grew and, and changed, I was fragile and scared and angry, and I didn't know why. And after all these years of work, I have grown, and I don't feel fragile, and I'm not angry, and I'm certainly not scared. And I feel I have an opportunity to pay that forward and share it with other people. And so I was working in this men's group. I was trying to save my marriage. I was asking my ex-wife to go to therapy on her own, to join me in couples therapy, to try and, and grow forward. I knew that we had to grow forward together if we were going to help our marriage survive. And that's when I learned about Mars One. How did that come to you? How did you find out about Mars One? I think it came across a, a science news feed that there was this not-for-profit organization in Denmark, in the Netherlands, and they were looking for volunteers. And the CEO, Baz Lansdorp, was hoping to get a million people to sign up to participate in this mission to establish a permanent colony on Mars. You've been fascinated by space since you were a kid, though. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I grew up, Star Trek was on television and I had such good fortune. My family had a sailboat. And so, uh, my, my, I have three younger sisters, my sister Uglers and what did you say? My sister Uglers. <laughs> it's from a ugly sisters. Yeah. It's from a story, a silly story. A family friend used to tell us my sister Uglers and, um, but I diverge. We, <laughs> I love my sisters and I'm very fortunate to have them in my life as well. And, uh, so our family would cruise, go on a three-week cruise almost every summer, and I would lie on the bow of the boat on a moonless night with the binoculars, and I'd look up at the stars, and I'd look up at the binoculars, at the stars through the binoculars, and I knew the constellations and just navigation. The whole thing was just, it was right there. This was Star Trek and Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. All in one. All in one, right? Just like... Our human destiny to travel off of our planet and explore other planets the way we traveled off of our continents and our islands and we explored other continents and other islands here on earth the way you know 40,000 years ago groups of people came over a land bridge during an ice age into north america we this is who we are as a species we're curious you're just coming alive i know people can't see you but your body language your face i can Totally see your fascination and your enthusiasm. I love, I love I got goosebumps. <laughs> I love this stuff. So what was that process like, that application? We had to fill out a questionnaire. We had to pay a nominal fee. And that was, so before I did that, the first question was, is this a scam? <laughs> Mars? Mars? Is this whole thing? Come on, really? Is this a scam? You want us to go to Mars? And, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker. We look at life that way. A little cynical. Lens. A little cynical. It's not a bad thing, though. No, no, it's not a bad thing. And um, and I don't, I didn't believe, and I do not believe at all that Mars One was anything other than an earnest effort to try and do something remarkable, amazing. They didn't ask for ongoing donations. They didn't ask for inappropriate donations or disproportionate donations. Everything was based upon the gross domestic product of the country from which a person was applying. And so in the United States, it was a nominal $64. But somebody from a, much, a country with a much smaller GDP, they were paying 5 or $6. So, and it was a one-time fee. They liked you because you led engineering teams, Correct. Uh, that would have been your contribution. I think so. But in some ways, you're a renaissance man, a ballet dancer, choreographer, triathlete, sailor, and an entrepreneur, a wide variety of skill sets. What attracted me to Mars One was that was a couple of factors. One was that the plan was based upon technology that exists today. Single throw rockets, landing technology, parachutes. There was engineering. There is engineering to be done, for sure. They knew that they had to put together systems that didn't exist. But it's not like the mission required a technology that does not exist, right? We The, the mission didn't require ion engines or teleportation or anything else that doesn't exist. We could do it with what we have today. It would not be easy. But then again, did you see the size of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria? Yes. Those are tiny wee little ships. I went to Christopher Columbus Elementary. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I saw yeah. that every year. <laughs> Those are really small <laughs> ships. And, uh, and, yet, and yet he terrorized his crew and made it across the Atlantic Ocean. But then again, look at, look at the Portuguese navigator Magellan. That was also a tiny ship, and he went around the... the What's the southern tip of Africa, Cape of Good Hope, and to the uh, Indian Ocean and um, was able to successfully circumnavigate that. And those, again, tiny Portuguese caravel, teeny, teeny ships. The fact that it was going to be challenging or difficult or a little uncomfortable, it's just part of the price of admission. I wasn't worried about that. So one big part was the technology didn't have to be invented. Another huge part was that they were looking for the right people 
who could come together as a high-performing team and learn the necessary skills. And, and I have spent the majority of my professional career in software engineering doing just that. I was part of a wonderful organization many years ago. The founders were engineers. We said, we are by engineers, for engineers, of engineers. And we had a lot of fun. Really, really good group of people. While I was working with them, I had this crazy thought because we had been doing project management in this stereotypical way, top down, I'm the project manager, I assign the task, I define all of the tasks and I assign them and I tell you how long it takes to do them. And if you don't get it done, I get angry and then we have to report to the customer that we're over budget and we're over time. And I'm like, why do I have to do all of this work? First of all, I'm an engineer, I'm fundamentally lazy, but my team, they're all engineers. They're all smart educated, talented, dedicated, capable adults. Why am I telling them what to do? So I flipped it around and I, I asked them, what are we going to do? How are we going to solve this problem? What's the first thing that we have to solve? The more collaboratively I worked with my team, the more I just told them what was important based upon my conversations with executive management or a customer or a key stakeholder, the more, the faster and more capable we, we as a team were in solving the problem and getting laser focused in solving that. So I, I knew from my own experience that finding the right people who can work collaboratively, politely and respectfully with one another creates a powerful environment for success. What were you actually going to do there after that, what, 10 years of training here on Earth? Uh, we were going to thrive. We were going to live. We were going In to what live way? on Mars. In pods? Uh, so the, the plan, the Mars One plan, was that we would have habitats, and the habitats would be um, landers. And then from the habitats, we could inflate additional living space, and we could connect the habitats together. So we could build a, set, a, a row of six habitats. Two of them would be living uh, quarters. Two of them would be supply um, depots. And then two of them would be power generation stations. So there'd be 100% redundancy in those six, in those six pods. And then we would have as much space as a comfortable uh, two-bedroom apartment. One that bed. sounds like a lot. Yeah. And so we would grow our own food and we would conduct scientific experiments. So uh, uh, the majority of our envisioned day would be making sure we don't die. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, yeah, that's sort of important. Mars, you know. You spend seven months traveling there. Right. You want to live a bit. And that's right. Elon Musk was famously said that he plans on dying on Mars. He just doesn't want to die on entry and landing. <laughs> so we want to get there and we want to create a, a habitat. And the Mars One Foundation had put together a, a robust plan on exploring the planet and putting in a communication satellite and getting the rovers down there. Uh, to really explore and find our ideal living environment, to send all of the equipment there, have the rovers set it up so that it was functioning before we even took off. So the two habitats. Oh, okay. Then you show up. That's right. There was going to be atmosphere and water. There were two years worth of supplies um, in each one of the uh, cargo holds. So there was four years total. And then with the first human mission, simultaneously would launch six more launches that would provide all of the supplies for the second human mission. So when the first human mission was on Mars, they had enough for four times their, their mandated mission. Eight years, eight years worth of, of supplies. You would have been in your, what, late 60s by the time you made it there if the Mars One Foundation hadn't gone bankrupt, correct? Right. Well, it didn't really go bankrupt. Because you know what I heard the central issue was? that they actually wanted to send the women first so that dinner would be ready by the time the men arrived. <laughs> no, no, that's not the case. That's adorable. Though. The, the, teams, uh, the teams were going to be four people, two men, two female, biologically. 
uh, we have a lot of flexibility about gender identification, but the uh, chief medical officer, I believe his, his intention was that from a biological perspective, there'd be two females and two males. Um, but we never got to the point of really exploring that. I could imagine that team dynamics could have dictated a different structure. But you didn't go bankrupt? What happened exactly? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked. The Mars One Foundation is the not-for-profit organization in the Netherlands. They started up another company, another organization, Mars One Ventures, which is a Swiss corporation, I believe. And through a reverse takeover, Mars One Ventures was able to be listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. Mars One Ventures was a commercial operation that was intended to generate revenue by leveraging the Mars One brand, providing marketing and, and um, partnerships with other organizations. Imagine a famous watchmaker wanted to make a watch that showed you both time on Earth and time on Mars at the human colony with the touch of a button. So it, it, those kinds of branding opportunities would bring value back to Mars One, and the commercial arm, Mars One Ventures, would then distribute its revenue. There was a revenue share with the foundation. So this is how the foundation would remain operationally independent, and the commercial arm would generate revenue that would fund the foundation. But what happened then? Well, that reverse takeover had a complication. One of the investors in the in the acquiring company that then became the sub company wanted his money back. He wanted his investment back and he filed an administrative action with the Frankfurt stock exchange to stop trading so that he could get his investment back. That administrative action, as far as I know, is still in place. Trading is not permitted. Mars one ventures is not able to generate revenue. It's not able to fund the foundation and they haven't been apparently been able to come to terms with the original investor of the now defunct acquiring company. So we're in a holding pattern. It's in, it's in a holding pattern and it's been going on for so long that it's difficult to see it coming out at this point. That was 2015, right? Right. When you were chosen. I think the Mars one venture was about two years later. You know, we had the round three selection. That was an amazing experience. The Mars one foundation was very optimistic about raising enough funds to hold the next two rounds of selection. They were going to, so round three is 50 men and 50 women, a hundred candidates. You were the 100. You I had was, made it to the semifinalist that's stage. Right. I was a member of, of the 100. And that was pretty heady. That was pretty heady. Oh, sure. I'm leaving for Mars yeah. one day Yeah. and I will die there. Yeah. Come with us. We're going to Mars. Come with us. Had you really thought it all through? I believe I did, yes. Quite intently, quite thoroughly. Yes. How could you not? How could you sign up for a one-way permanent human mission to Mars, leaving behind your wife, your children, your siblings, your nieces and nephews, your friends, your dogs? How can you sign up for all of that and not give it profound consideration? How could you, though, go to Mars? I have to. Why? I had to. I had to. Because there's about 7.4, 7.5 billion people on our planet. Of that massive number of humanity, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of them think it's actually a good idea to get into a spaceship launch from planet Earth, travel six to eight months through interplanetary space and land on a planet that's really challenging for survival. Of the tiny percentage of the entirety of humanity that think it's a good idea, there's still another tiny percentage that are actually reasonable candidates to do that. And of that tiny percentage of a tiny percentage, there's still a smaller percentage of those reasonable candidates who are excellent candidates, who are, have the right mindset, they understand the mission, they can, be, they can work collaboratively, they can learn and, and, and master all of the studies. And of that now threefold tiny percentage, there's still a smaller subset of people who would actually legitimately thrive, that every moment of this experience would be inspired 
expiring from the moment that they launch, suffering through, through the congestion of interplanetary space, the fear of, of solar flares and hiding in this tiny little water fill, water protected compartment for days on end, waiting for the solar flare, the, the, the danger of landing, the uncertainty of establishing a life on Mars, growing your food, not dying every day, that would be inspiring and thrilling just to have the opportunity to go outside and see the stars from the soil of another planet. I like to believe I'm part of that last subset. And because it's such a small fraction of our human population who would thrive in that kind of environment. Those of us who feel that we can, we have an obligation to do so. Yeah. You feel compelled in some way. We have to go. We have to go. You feel a calling. Yeah. Did you really explore all that earth has to offer? Is it possible to explore all that earth has to offer? (laughs) I've, I've had good fortune to, enjoy all of the exploration I've been able to do growing up sailing, exploring science and water and stars and atmosphere, astronomy. Um, my ex-wife was uh, half German and half Portuguese. So we traveled to Germany and Portugal regularly. I had colleagues in India. I've been to India a few times there's a lot more that I really want to see. There's a lot of this planet. I want. There's a lot of this country I haven't seen. It's a different opportunity to go and try and establish a permanent foothold for humanity somewhere else. And it'll be a small number of people who will be drawn to that. And after it's established, then it will become more attractive to other people. And you can see in, in a relatively short arc that it could become normal. Do you think we'll have human settlement on Mars in your and my lifetime? I hope so. Do you think you might be able to be part of a future project? It seems unlikely at this point. If Mars one had kept to its timeline, I would have been in my late sixties in the launch. And fortunately I come from a long lived family. So I think I would have been able to survive launch, transit, landing, and I still would have had a good 30 to 40 years to dedicate to, to human life on Mars. But, um, you know, now that it's been another, what, six years, seven years, and it doesn't look like it's getting started. If it did get started, um, I don't think I would be eligible for launch until my late seventies or maybe my early eighties. And that might be too much to ask of an, of an 80 year old body. We'll see. It's not done yet, but I think a lot of us in the Mars, Mars one, 100 recognize that we could no longer wait for Mars one to tell us that they were ready for us. There are Mars one candidates who had postponed their graduate studies or pursuing their medical degree or starting a family because we were all on edge. What happens if we get selected? What happens if we want to move forward? And uh, I saw one by one people starting to make the choice to move on with their lives. We are still supporting Mars one. We're still there. If, if, and when Boz, reaches out to us and says, I need you. We're all going to stand up. How did your five kids take that news? Most of them were utterly disinterested. (laughs) It it was just dad. It's just dad. Um, They liked the notoriety in school. And there was significant notoriety. Uh, There was a, a point within the, following year where my youngest two who were still around 12 and eight at the time came up to me and asked, daddy, why do you want to leave us? And, uh, it's a heart wrenching question. And it didn't sound like it was a question that they thought of, but a question that had been given to them. 
by somebody else. But I, the focus is on, on my children. And I said to them, I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave you at all. I feel I have to do this and that I can do this, but I want you to come with me. I want you to grow up and be interested in science and, and I want you to gain the skills and, and I want you to be interested in this as an opportunity for you. And I want you to come to Mars, whether you come and visit, do work there, some research, or you decide to come and try to make it your home as well. They would have been adults by the time you would have made it there anyway. And that was a factor in why I chose to be part of Mars One as well, that by the time there was going to be a first human launch, my youngest would have been in her mid-20s. And you would have been able to communicate with them. Yes. And anyone, really. What would that look like? It would be one-way communication because the fastest that radio and uh, light travels from Earth to Mars still takes about 18 to 20 minutes when the planets are at their closest point and closer to 25 or 27 minutes, 28 minutes when they're further away. And then sometimes when they're on opposite sides of the sun, there is no direct communication. You have to bounce it off of a satellite somewhere else to get communication, which makes the, the time even longer. Well, Mars One was planning on recording our lives 12 hours a day and streaming that. Like a reality show. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was going to be one of the, one of the greatest adventures our species has undertaken. I would have watched. And they wanted to keep the entire planet engaged. And that is what would have generated the revenue back to the initial investors. Six billion dollars is a significant sum to raise. What were some of the hesitations that your colleagues, that your friends expressed? Understandably, there are a lot of people who thought this was a terrible idea. Did they change the way they thought about you as a person? Like, what kind of guy wants to go to Mars forever? I don't think so. I think that they recognize this is who I am. At one point, I did say that this was a win-win. If, if, if somebody really knows me and understands me, they understand that I am perfect for this. I want to do this, and I will thrive, and, and they will be supportive of that. And if they don't like me, then this is a great way to get me off of your planet. Yeah, you're not right for everyone, and I'm not right for everyone either. Right, exactly. Um, my, my dearest and, and longest friend has continually expressed reasonable and appropriate doubt over the entire Mars One project. I would say Mars One doesn't need any new invention, and he would say that's nonsense. All, none of these systems exist. And I would say, that's true, there's engineering, they need to be put together. And he would say, yeah, but that means that they don't exist, and therefore there's invention. So he has a very reality-based perspective, not for nothing, he's also an engineer. And uh, he would also you know, cast doubt as to the viability of, of the mission on Mars. You know, how is he going to do this? And But I think he recognized that this is part of my personality, this curiosity and this, this fascination with doing something that gives back on a grand scale to, to people. Have you been following Perseverance, the rover, and Ingenuity, the helicopter, and all of the activities going on right now? Tangentially. I, they come across my news feed. I'm uh, working for a new company that I started a few a month and a half or so ago. I'm in a relationship that's not yet a year old. And uh, I've been looking to find the right puppy to adopt. So my life has been, been filling up with the day-to-day, -day, very normal things that everybody else deals with. And so I'm following it tangentially because until there's I mean, I'm fascinated by my Mars and space and science still, but um, I'm also equally fascinated by the America's Cup races that are going on in New Zealand because those boats are unreal. That's a lot of good science going on, science and engineering going on there. Are you hopeful that there may be some other venture other than Mars One that you could be a part of? 
Because there are other private and commercial efforts going on right now. Yes. Um, I don't know about, I haven't come across another opportunity to apply to be a colonist. There is a Mars simulation environment here on earth. Uh, and they do good work in exploring human dynamics and trying to conduct science and pretend that they live on Mars. Um, I thought about that. I know that some of the, my Mars, Mars one, 100, uh, cohort members have participated in that. Um, following SpaceX and seeing them land rockets on barges and land those two boosters side by side after the, Oh my gosh, that is just so good. What a rush. <laughs> so, so good. I still love watching those whenever I get a chance. Um, there had been some astronaut candidate opportunities with NASA, but I had aged out of those things. One of the things that was really great about Mars one is that there was no upper age limit. As long as you could pass the physical and you could still participate fully in the program, you were eligible to keep going. So I don't know. Mars one was very unique in its inception. And, um, it, while it may officially not be gone yet, it's very difficult to see how it would come back in its in originally envisioned idea. I have spent so much of the past decade plus focused on, on growing as a person. And Mars One was a tremendous opportunity that, that carried me forward a long way. It really helped me understand the dynamic in my, in my marriage that was not successful, that was not viable for the long term. And that personal growth has brought me to where I am today, where I have a, a healthy, healthier, more complete sense of self and a relationship with a truly wonderful human being. And, um, the opportunity to explore and experience every, every day in a partnership. I could not have gotten here were it not for all of this foundational work and the support and the opportunities and yeah, small amount of courage to step into something that was unknown. Are you pretty fearless? What scares you, if anything? What scares me is, is the course humanity is on if we don't strive more effectively to build a fair and equitable society for every human being on our planet. What scares me is the greater degree of division, a, ses a sense of, of isolation based upon the way we choose to characterize a deity or the way our skin or eye shape looks or some other superficial quality. That's what scares me. That we'll destroy ourselves from within. Right. That we're polluting and, and ravaging our only source of life. And, and that there is a disproportionate control of resources by a tiny minority of people. That is wrong. That's what scares me. It's not sustainable either. It is not. Personally, I'm so lucky. I can make a good income. I have opportunity. I have a relationship. I am healthy. My family lives a long time. I'm so, so fortunate. I, I feel an obligation to reach out and try to pay it forward. I, that's why I volunteer to, to help in this men's group, this men's support group, teach other people how to access something that has heretofore been difficult. Teach men, support men as they explore being a person, having feelings, having emotions, recognizing them, accepting them. That's my, you know, act locally part. I think that part of the patriarchal organization is that men are granted a certain degree of power by default, authority by default. And if 
for everybody who's ever been in a team environment, there are people who emerge as clear leaders because they are inspirational and, and anybody, everybody else wants to follow them. And then there are also organizations that are put together where somebody is assigned the leadership role and everybody understands they are not a good leader. And so just because somebody is assigned a leadership role and assigned a leadership role based upon their gender at birth is a, is a pretty poor organizing principle. But as we were talking about before we started recording, there's a lot of deeply ensconced control that will be hard to wrest away from those who have it. But I think we have a lot of examples occurring concurrently on our planet where people are striving for greater equality and we have to support those. You asked me what about what I am afraid. You asked me what scares me. It's not individuals. It's not anything day to day. It's, it's a, larger. It's about the quality of the world that I'm going to hand off to my children. And I want grandchildren and I want great grandchildren and I want to know them. And I want to know that they have a healthy nurturing environment in which they can achieve their, their potential. So Mars one was a really great opportunity in which to answer the question, who are you? What's important to you? What choices will you make? And I still strongly believe that as a species, we're going to Mars. We're going to go into space and we're going to go explore. We will figure it out. It is not going to be easy. For me personally, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been part of that. I will continue to do what I can to promote its ideals, the ideals of a human society on Mars, as well as a society composed of individuals from multiple countries and ethnicities and background who choose to come together to thrive in a difficult and dangerous environment. But at the same point, I'm also living the life that I have today. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> it was such a pleasure, Christina. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. <laughs>